0: When I moved back to Amherst, Nova Scotia after 15 years away, something had changed. Like many other towns, our local businesses and business people had been overwhelmed by large corporations and monopolies. This hurt the spirit of our communities. We lost our autonomy, our self-reliance, and our hope. So join me as I learn more about where we are now, how we got here, and what we can do to take back our communities. I'm Andrew Cameron, and Monopolies killed my hometown. Welcome back to episode 27 of Monopolies Killed My Hometown. I'm your host, Andrew Cameron. Uh, Today's episode, we're going back to the Royal Commission on Price Spreads, and we're going to talk about agricultural implements. We're going to talk about tractors, we're going to talk about farms, we're going to talk about combines, we're going to talk about all that equipment. And we're gonna look at what the commission found this industry's impact on price of food on farmers was in the 1930s. We're gonna look at some of what they thought could be done to help out at that point. And then we're gonna connect that back to the right to repair movement that's really being pushed forward today. So stick around. There's lots of great stuff in this episode. I really enjoyed reading this section, kind of going through this one, because I've talked before that Cumberland County has a lot of farming and farmland uh, around it. I remember when there were a lot of really healthy, small rural communities that were really centered around this farming and the farming lifestyles. On top of that, my wife grew up on a dairy farm and that her family goes back four plus generations on that land. And when we go out there, you can see some of the remnants of the healthy community that existed out there, but is struggling and isn't quite there. I like that section because it kind of pointed out or talked about some of the things that were happening that caused the problems that you see in these communities. Also for me, like one of my best friends growing up owned a tractor dealership. And so I've kind of grown up tangentially around this whole business. And even then, I've also bought a lot of tractors and other equipment from them since we started our business. Like I see the number of jobs that these tractor dealerships create. They employ mechanics, uh, salespeople, parts suppliers, the office administration that comes with them. They provide a lot of economic boost to the community. And I also know that the level of service that they provide to us because they are locally owned and I know them. I think for us to have a healthy farming community again, we need the healthy support industries for the farmers, right? The tractor dealers are definitely part of that. In this section, I enjoyed their investigation of kind of what the business model was at that point in the 1930s. And finally, like I really like this one because it gets into a lot of the anti-monopoly policies that we can implement again, that don't necessarily require a whole lot of in-depth economic analysis. Uh, There's things like right to repair, or standardization, or mandated interoperability. Basically, it just means when things are required to be able to work together. Back to the report and the investigation. So the commission found in the 1930s there were four large manufacturers of agricultural implements. There was Massey Harris Company, International Harvester Company of Canada, Cockshut Plow Company, and Frost and Wood Company. And these four companies had approximately 75% of the market share between 1929 and 1933. But at that point, International Harvester was a wholly owned subsidiary of the largest American farm implement company. Massey Harris and Cockshut Plow, they both had broad, diverse ownership. But the fourth company, Frost and Wood Company, is actually a subsidiary of Cockshut Plow Company. So really, the top four companies were effectively only three companies. And one of those was a subsidiary of the largest American company. Based on everything else we've gone through before, three major companies in an industry with 75% of the market share is not a competitive market or a competitive industry. So the commission stated about the industry, We have seen in other industries how competition of that nature can lead to abuses and unethical practices. And while this industry and its employees may in this respect have been more fortunate than some others, It is probably the absence of simple competition that has resulted in higher prices to farmers than would otherwise be obtained. So basically the commission was just saying because there wasn't the competition, farmers had to pay more for their tractors and all their other farm equipment. And when we go back to what was happening at the beginning that they were getting less and less for their grain and other products, this extra cost on the tractors because lack of competition was just being extracted and taken from the farmers, making it harder for them to survive and run their farm and run their business. I want to talk about sort of the industry structure first, because I found this one quite fascinating. And so the commission found that most of the manufacturing was concentrated in Ontario, and then the equipment was shipped across the country. So I assume the, you know, the farm implement companies ran into the same issues with the railroads that all other manufacturing companies did. And so I'd really be curious to see if these companies did the same thing that the meat companies did, which was get into other industries to increase the volume they shipped to have better negotiating power with the railroads. You know, I don't know if they did or not. I would just assume that they did something, but it'd be kind of curious. I'd be interested if somebody could go back and really look into that. So the tractor manufacturers had distribution points throughout the country, right? So the commission said the three largest companies had 41 branches throughout Canada. Most of them are in Western Canada. And the tractor companies maintained warehouses throughout the country to quickly and easily ship product. This kind of reminds me of Amazon today. That's kind of got the same sort of feel. But anyways, so the largest tractor companies sold their products through agents on consignment, right? They gave them a commission or a cut or a price when they sold the products. So the local agent kept some display models on the lot. And when someone bought a piece of equipment, that equipment was then shipped in. And so the commission found that this was really a costly system because the manufacturers had to maintain all these warehouses, transfer points, ship goods across the country. And all of these costs are predominantly fixed costs, right? So if the number of tractors that they sell decreases, they can't necessarily just get rid of a warehouse. You can't scale those costs up and down depending on how much you're producing. And so the commission found that this system really created inflexible prices for farm equipment across the country, which could have also driven up the cost being paid by the farmers for their equipment. And I can also see this system here creating huge power imbalances between the manufacturer and their agents. So in this situation, the manufacturer would really have the decision-making power. Because right? I could see a situation where a small agent and a large agent both sell the same tractor, but there's only one available. And when you look at it that way, who's the manufacturer going to send that tractor to? I mean, it's easy. They're going to send it to the biggest agent who does the most volume and most business for them. And so the commission found that this sort of setup of the industry was used in the U.S. until 1920, well, around 1920, but that the U.S. dealers were able to get to a position where they could buy the product directly and buy the materials and the repair parts and stock them at their own store, and that they could operate independently of the manufacturers, right? Like that they wouldn't be a direct agent of the manufacturers. And the commission thought that it would be nice if the industry in Canada could go that way. And really that's the way it has gone. And that's the way the industry is set up now in, in Canada. The commission found that the dealers and manufacturers really could compete on salesmanship, keeping and supplying spare parts and in giving service, not necessarily directly on price. So for me personally, like I, I'm I'm not a farmer, but we do own a few tractors that we use for snow removal and service is as important, if not more important than the initial purchase price. Like for us, when we need our tractor for snow removal, we need it and we need it to work. You know, we can't tell our tenants that we've got to wait a couple of days for parts to come in and then we'll get to the snow. The tenants aren't going to be happy with this. And that would be the same with the farmers, right? If they need to cut hay today because it's going to rain soon or they need to seed or they need to harvest, they need their equipment to work. And if it's not working, then they need it to be fixed. And that's sort of the value that a lot of the independent and the smaller tractor dealers really can add to the rest of the local economy. And so those are a couple of things that I really kind of thought about and really liked with it. And so then when I was thinking more about it, it brings up some of the pro competitive or anti-monopoly policies that we can actually implement right now. And one of them, uh, and it's been pushed for a while, it's called the right to repair. And this is really a movement that started in the U.S. and they're having some success in the U.S. with it right now. Um, Some of the states are passing right-to-repair legislation. and The federal U.S. government is looking at doing something as well. And actually our government, the Canadian federal government, passed in the 2023 budget a desire to look at the right-to-repair legislation in 2024. And unsurprising to this, the North American Equipment Dealers Association, which represents all the big tractor manufacturers today, doesn't like this new legislation. And so the push for this legislation really started with farmers out of the U.S. And it impacts all of us. And the reason it started with farmers is because today equipment manufacturers, John Deere, the big green tractors, is one that's usually cited the most about this. They have used rules and other legislation to block farmers from fixing their own equipment. For example, this is according to the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. If a farmer or a non-certified repair person breaks a password or a digital lock to make a repair on the tractor, they are violating the Copyright Act. And when you stop and you think about this, like this is just mind-boggling. I'm trying to fix a tractor. What does copyright law have to do with me fixing my tractor? And this applies to like your cell phone, so many things with any software in it. Big firms or the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturer, is using copyright to stop you from being able to access and fix your equipment. You want more anti-monopoly news while you're waiting for me to record the next episode? Sign up for the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project newsletter at antimonopoly.ca slash newsletter. The argument that the OEMs, the manufacturers are making, is that they have a copyright on the software underpinning the tractor, the combine, the cell phone, the computer, the camera. And that if you modify the software, you're breaking their copyright on their software. Nothing to do with like the actual equipment working or anything like that. It's about the software. And they also make the argument that if you're a non-certified technician or a repair person and you try to fix your computer or any of the equipment, right, you've also voided the warranty. And so these are the ways they're getting around making it so basically you can't fix your own equipment if it breaks, right? So when I think back to it, if you go up to say anybody and you ask them, how does copyright law impact farmers and tractors. Most people would look at it and go, well, why? Why is that in there at all? What impact does this have on anybody? Why are we letting this happen? But it actually gets weirder than this, because in the past, some companies have argued that in this case, the farmers, the farmer may own the tractor, but they're only licensing the software from the company to run the tractor. So they're somewhat arguing that the farmer doesn't actually own the tractor it's just a weird weird legal situation we've allowed to you know develop and sort of the right to repair laws are really going to get at trying to resolve this one so in these situations what happens when a farmer's equipment breaks down like their combines tractors whatever so instead of the farmer being able to go out and buy you know the diagnostic tools or having access to the software or access to the uh, computers that are in there the farmer has to wait for a licensed or a pre-approved technician to come out to fix the problem So I found this CBC article from 2021 about a grain farmer in Alberta. And this farmer said that there was a computer glitch in his combine that forced him to wait for two hours for an approved tech to come out and reset the computer. It took five minutes for the tech to fix the problem. And this combine sat idle for two hours while he needed to be harvesting the grain. Then the farmer would have had to pay top rate for the technician to drive out, fix the problem and drive back. And again, same situation, like grain is a commodity. The farmer can't just increase their price to recoup the costs from this repair. The farmer would have to just eat this cost. And so when I look at this, like using other laws like the Copyright Act to force farmers or consumers to use licensed technicians is just a way to extract more money from us. And so the push for the right to repair laws is to deal with some of these weird legal structures we've let happen. And... We gotta go off on a little side quest or a little tangent on this one because we talked about farmers, but it's important to realize that no one is immune to this. And the US military has this problem. So I found a 2019 article from the New York Times. There was a logistics officer in South Korea and he was trying to get a generator fixed. The maintenance tech couldn't fix it, like the US military maintenance tech couldn't fix it because For the military tech to fix it, it would have voided the warranty on the generator. So they had to wait for an authorized technician, I think to fly to South Korea to fix the generator. He also talked about, when he was stationed in Okinawa in Japan, that he watched engines being packed up and shipped from Okinawa to the U.S. because the contract says, the contract with the manufacturer says that all repairs are to be made in the U.S. And you just saw me think about the absurdity of the cost of this, let alone the fact that if it was actually in a military operation and you're relying on a generator, you're out in a battlefield and something's going on and it breaks down you have to wait for a technician to come fix it and you can't do it. Like that's just a whole other issue and a whole other situation to think about in regards to, we'll say, the right to repair. Like I said, for us, like as consumers, we see this a lot around electronics. And so for me, the most obvious being cell phones. Right, like if you'd go and try to fix your own iPhone now, you very quickly just void your warranty. And not only that, Apple over time has used proprietary screws and glues so that it was really next to impossible for individuals to repair their own equipment. If you want to get your iPhone fixed, you have to take it to an authorized service center. And so in this situation, a lot of times the cost of repair isn't worth fixing it. It's not worth paying that to you know, repair an old cell phone. So you generally buy a new one. And this is great for Apple or Samsung or LG or anyone else selling cell phones because you're not allowing people to fix things. You're creating like a forced obsolescence where the people then have to go buy new phones all the time. This is not a great situation for the consumers because, I mean, who wants to buy a new phone all the time? And it's also not great for the environment because we have to keep disposing of all these old devices instead of being able to fix them and keep them going. And so, one of the things that kind of seen happen over the last few years with the push for the right to repair legislation is we've actually started to see companies softening on their approaches to this issue. Apple has started opening up repair manuals, parts, supplies, service equipment to the public. Other companies are doing similar things too. And so, you know, if you've listened to enough of this, my somewhat, we'll say, cynical take on this is that they're really relaxing their stance slightly in the hopes of avoiding any regulation. Because one aspect of the right to repair legislation that we need to keep pushing for our mandates for keeping parts available, right? It's one thing to have the right to repair your equipment, but if the original manufacturer like Apple, John Deere, uh, Lenovo, Samsung, Honda, GM, whoever stops making the parts you need for the repair, then your right to repair just doesn't matter. I'd never really thought about the right to repair in the context of keeping parts, but this actually is in the price spreads commission again, because They pointed out that in the 1930s, some provincial governments required manufacturers to stock repair parts for 10 years. And this was to guarantee that people could fix their equipment over the lifespan and that we weren't reliant on the good graciousness or the good nature of manufacturers to stock equipment at their cost so somebody could repair their tractor or fridge or appliance or whatever in the future. And so that's one thing that we could bring in right now as part of these legislations. You know, we could mandate for 10 years, it could be like a declining scale that you have to have enough parts on hand to repair, say, 50% of your equipment in year one, in year five, you can do 25%. Like, there's different things like this, but we could mandate that manufacturers have to keep the parts in hand on stock so that we can actually repair our equipment once we get this right back. Mandating them to keep the parts on hand and equipment on hand, repair parts on hand to let us fix our equipment would actually really encourage Apple and other manufacturers to standardize their equipment. Instead of changing a port or changing, you know, a charging cable or an end or whatever on all their models to really to force people to then buy new chargers or new accessories, the companies would be incentivized to use the same equipment, same parts, same connectors, all those sorts of things over each model unless a part is a major upgrade because they would have to keep fewer inventory of parts, right? Like I think with iPhones, like if every iPhone used the same plug, right? Instead of switching USB-C, Lightning, the old adapter, Apple's incentivized if they had to keep parts on hand is to really find one really good one and use it. Then they have less cost ongoing of keeping repair parts in inventory or on hand. This is another concept that was historically used for dealing with monopolies and it's standardization. This was one of the things that really came out of dealing with the telephone monopolies, like Bell Canada and AT&T, right? Like in North America, I've never shown up, I mean, who shows up with phones to plug in at people's houses anymore. But if you took a phone from your house and you took it to a friend's house, you could always plug it in. You never worried about getting to somebody's house and them having a weird phone jack where you couldn't use a phone. Same with like electrical plugs. Uh, You know, if you have a 120 volt appliance and you go to your friend's house, you know, you will be able to plug it in. You're not worried about, okay what adapter do they have in their house versus what adapter do I have here is because we standardized them all and we mandated a standardization of things like phone jacks, mandating it broke up the ability of a large company being able to change that every five years, enforcing everybody else to go out and replace their phones or buy new cables or new charging or new power cords, that standardization prevented that and it also allowed other businesses to be built on top of these you can really see the standardization benefits when you start looking at computers in the tech industry. Computer monitors all have the same inputs. So you can use an HP monitor with a Lenovo computer. You can connect a Samsung monitor to a a, a Mac because they all use the same inputs, right? HDMI, DVI, all those different ones. TVs were the same way too. So in theory, I could, you know, go up to my parents' attic, dig out the you know, 40-year-old Commodore 64 monitor that's there and connect a computer to it from today. It's not going to look good, but I could do it. My daughter's big into Lego, and I got a friend that is really big into Lego too, and that's one of those things. Lego standardized their connectors between all their blocks. So if you have a Lego block from 50 years ago, you can connect it to a block today. They could have, over the time frame, has changed how all their blocks connect even a little bit. And if they changed it, you would then have to go replace all your old lego to be able to use it with the new lego but lego realized that they would just piss off all their customers if they started doing that so they've made sure that all their blocks can connect all the way through but this is the thing if you're a dominant company you would want the ability to have a proprietary cable or connector or adapter or the standard because you could use that to keep other companies out of the industry and then, like I said, every five years, you can just change it and people have to go then buy a whole new set of cables or a whole new set of connectors. And that's a fantastic benefit for the dominant company, but not for the rest of us. So with standardization and standardizing ports and standardizing how equipment works together and how things connect, like I said, does a couple of things is it reduces the power of dominant firms to use that proprietary technology to keep other companies out. And it also allows other people to get in and build upon the product that's there so you can start to get other businesses and you can start to get new businesses in. Like I said, the Canadian federal government has proposed right to repair legislation. Uh, I'll post some links to it. This is one of those ones that, you know, if you're talking to your MP or you mentioned that to them, push them to pass this legislation, right? Because it has a whole lot of benefits for us. You know, as everything else seems to be going up in price, it'd be nice to be able to fix some things again. Right, whether that's your appliances or your fridge or your TV or your phone or your car, like, and not have to just replace things. One, it's gonna be cheaper for all of us. Two, it's gonna be more environmentally friendly. And three, if you know standards aren't gonna change all the time, you're then able to start designing or start working with it and building more businesses and building more opportunities that way. So I'll post some more links to the legislation, I'll post some more links to the bright to repair movement. But definitely, this is one to follow along, and I'm really hoping that our government, like in Canada, the federal government, will really push for this to move forward. So I hope you enjoyed this show, this episode on farming equipment, and I hope you can see how this connects to us today, especially with, you know, rising grocery prices and cost of food going up for us. So if you enjoyed this episode, like, follow, share, subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And then check back next week. We're going to carry on with the price spreads report and we're going to carry on with the food theme and we're going to look at uh, canning of fruits and vegetables. Take care, everyone. We'll see you in a few weeks. What are you doing? All time? The A few powerful companies. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.